A reading from Genesis. Sarah lived 127 years. This was the length of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at Kiriatha Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. A reading from Job. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nehemiathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word for him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. A reading from John. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. Word of God, word of life. Today we begin our second worship and preaching series of the summer, this one focusing on grief and loss. Like our other series focused on mission and discernment, we have a different hymn in place of the traditional Kyrie and Canticle of Praise. The assigned gospel reading is replaced by another selection of scripture. The sermon and hymn following continue that grief theme, and we have an intercession added to our prayers later on that will be included until our next grief day. Quick disclaimer before we get into this. I am using a clinical model to guide us through the, the, this series of four over the next few months, but this is not group therapy or a replacement for therapy that you might need to process significant and or complicated grief. This is meant to be more about some grief education and a starting point for some conversation for us around some of the various communal losses of the last several years. If you find yourself struggling or otherwise having a hard time with this topic because of stuff in your own life, please tell me. You will probably not be the only one, and I don't want to cause anybody any, any pain or harm. So tell me so I can make any appropriate adjustments. Also, if you just want to talk because it is bringing something up for you that you're thinking about or, or whatever, again, please reach out to me and we can talk. We can meet over coffee, on the phone, whatever. Um, also, don't be afraid if you need to, to reach out to a licensed therapist to, to get into some really in-depth stuff. Okay, so grief and loss. I said I'm using a clinical model and that is William Warden's Four Tasks of Mourning. We're going to focus on focus each session on one of those four tasks which are in order to accept the reality of the loss that's today to process the pain of grief it's next month 
to adjust to a world without the deceased, and task four, to find a way to remember the deceased while embarking on the rest of one's journey through life. And these tasks are not check boxes that you do and you're done. It's ongoing, you go back and forth through them. So Warden's model, as you might have noticed, focuses on death. Someone we know has died. How do we mourn that loss of life, that death? But death is not the only type of loss that we grieve over. In a far from exhaustive list of other types of loss, some of the other things we grieve are pets. They're part of the family. Their deaths can be felt very much like the death of a significant person. There's medical loss. Different events, diagnoses, and or treatment can have various impacts on the functions of our minds and our bodies. Like a stroke could effectively paralyze one side of your body, or surgery to remove a tumor could remove a body part. There are various pregnancy losses like miscarriage, stillbirth, abortion, embryos that didn't make it in the IVF process. There's job losses. So much of our self-worth, our sense of self can be tied up in what we do that the loss of a job in retirement, being fired, or you know, a casualty of downsizing, etc., these can be devastating to how we see ourselves in the world and our place in the world. There's also the end of relationships, dating relationships, a friendship ends, divorce. Organizations also end, like a congregation that you've been part of closes or it merges with another one to become a new congregation and what was is no more. And of course, we have all experienced the loss of what used to be in these years of COVID. Lockdown and coming back, the new normal, and so on. In the scripture that we read today in place of the assigned gospel reading, we saw some different examples of death loss. Sarah died, leaving Abraham a widow. He mourns and weeps for her before asking to bury her in the foreign land in which they lived. I also kind of wonder if Abraham's mourning was complicated at all by some of the, uh, ooh, let's say, icky behaviors that he engaged in over the course of his marriage, like the multiple times he passed Sarah off as his sister instead of his wife, or when he raped Hagar in order to have Ishmael, an heir, before Sarah conceived and they had Isaac giving him a legitimate heir and he cast out Hagar and Ishmael. Job is faithful to God even as he receives word that his oxen, donkeys, and farmhands have been killed by the Sabaeans, that lightning has struck and killed his sheep and shepherds, his camels stolen and the camel riders killed by Chaldeans, his sons and daughters killed by a collapsing tent. He himself is now afflicted with painful boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. His wife tells him to just curse God and die, but he refuses. Three of his friends hear of what is happening and they come to console him. When they arrive, 
They do not recognize Job in all his disfigurement caused by both the physical affliction and the immense grief. They tear their clothing, throw dust, and sit with their friend in mournful silence and grief-filled weeping for seven days and seven nights with him in the pain and the deep despairing. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. He has gotten word that Lazarus was sick. He could have gone and prevented the death, but he didn't. He let his friend die. His body be laid in a tomb for four days. He arrived days later knowing the delay was necessary to raise his friend and show the power of God. Still, when it was time to see his friend's lifeless body, he wept. At the death and loss of his beloved friend, for the grief felt by Lazarus's sisters and their friends, for his own grief, Jesus wept. As we'll read over the next few months, the Bible is full of stories of people grieving death and other losses. We grieve, we mourn because we are human, because we are mortal and this life is temporary. We grieve even assured of the promises of the resurrection and the life to come because we are created for relationship and relationships in this life end. They cease to be, they change, they grow, they reform. Grief is natural and it is normal. And it comes with a lot of different feelings and a lot of different experiences. When we are grieving death and other losses, it is normal for us to feel a variety of feelings like sadness, anger, blame, guilt, anxiety, loneliness, fatigue, helplessness, shock, yearning, relief, numbness, and so on. It is normal to experience different things in our bodies, like a hollowness in the stomach, a tightness in the chest or throat, maybe an oversensitivity to noise, muscle weakness, dry mouth, etc. It is normal for our thought patterns to shift, and we might experience things like disbelief, confusion, preoccupation, sense of presence, and so on. It is normal to have some temporary behavioral changes, like sleep and or eating disturbances. We might be distracted or absent-minded. We might withdraw socially. We might have dreams of the deceased or avoid reminders of them. We might find ourselves doing a lot more sighing. We might feel restlessness, crying. We might carry around objects that belong to the deceased, etc. We experience these things differently from one another and for different losses. There is no one or right way to grieve. It varies and it is normal. And each of these different experiences of grief have a place 
in helping us in Warden's first task of mourning, to accept the reality of the loss. It might be easier for many of us to kind of just intellectually accept the death of someone before we can emotionally accept the reality of that loss. Intellectual acceptance can be basically just, just the facts of the matter. My husband has died, we had the funeral, I saw him in the casket, he is dead. Emotional acceptance is more nuanced and it takes time. We know that we've come to a point of emotional acceptance when we stop waking up every morning, reaching over to feel him on the other side of the bed, expecting that he's going to be there. Or when we stop waiting at the bus stop every afternoon for our child to come home from school. They aren't there. They aren't coming home. And we're never going to have another fight with them about using the last of the toilet paper and not replacing the roll. In the initial shock of grief, in the midst of the trauma event, the changes of life, reality is hard. One moment we can accept what has happened and the next, not so much. I mentioned earlier this month some troubles happening in another synod. At the conclusion of their absolutely awful synod assembly, one of the wounded at the center of many of those things wrote a blog post talking about sitting in the grief for a while. Healing and moving on will come later. But first, she needs to sit in the sadness, the longing for those lost expectations. She needs time to cry. She needs friends like Job to come and sit with her in the pain. She knows the intellectual reality of what has happened. And now she needs time to accept the emotional reality of how the big C church she loves can cause so much harm. She needs time in the grieving process to wrestle with the emotional realities. We are often so focused on just moving forward that we don't take the time to just sit in our own pain, to honor the hurt that we feel, to miss who and what has been lost. And when we don't take the time to sit and feel what is hard and painful, we often miss that God, the same God who became flesh and lived with and as one of us, is with us still, weeping, too, for what has ended, for who and what has been lost. Amen. A reading from Job. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said, A male is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. 
Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. The, that night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Yes, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let those curse who it let those cursed who curse the sea, those who are skilled to rouse up Leviathan, let the stars of its dark dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. May it not see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why were there knees to receive me or breasts for me to suck? Now I would be lying down and quiet. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves, or with princes who have gold, who fill their house with silver. Or why was I not buried like a stillborn child, like an infant that never sees the light? There, were wick there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are free from their masters. Why is light given to one in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it does not come, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find that grave? Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? For my sighing comes like my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Truly the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. As I said at the start of worship, today is the second session of our Grief and Loss series this summer. We're talking about grief this summer to give us all some common language or a shared foundation for how we might talk about losses and grief. And there have been many, many losses, much grief for you as a congregation the last several years. And remember again that this is not some sort of group therapy, nor is a replacement for any mental health counseling you might need for anything that this does bring up for you, even though we are using a clinical model. If you need to step away during the sermon, do so. If you need to talk about something, I'm available, and so are licensed therapists. And let me know if I hit on something that's harmful or potentially harmful, because you might not be the only one, and it's important for me to know when I say something up here that is not for good. Moving on, William Warden is a longtime researcher, therapist, and professor specializing in grief. For nearly 40 years, he has been publishing and refining his four tasks of mourning, which is what we are using for this series. And different steps, and different from steps or stages that you might have heard of with, with grieving, where one is expected to move from one to the other in a sequential fashion. Warden's tasks recognize that in grieving the death of someone, we may move back and forth. We may complete a task only to later need to repeat it or do some of that work again. And this is not a sign of brokenness or having done it wrong. It's just that we're human and we live in relationship to other humans, animals, God, and members of creation. And 
it's back and forth. So before we move on to our second task, a quick recap of our first task of mourning that we talked about last month, which is to accept the reality of the loss. And this is both intellectual, the facts of death, and the emotional, not waking up and expecting them on their side of the bed anymore. An acceptance of reality can take time. As I said a moment ago, you might find yourself needing to re-accept the reality of that loss at different times. Maybe, or especially at birthdays or various anniversaries of things with them. And maybe you're going about your day, life is good, and BAM! Right in the middle of the grocery store, 11 years later, it hits you like a bullet train. This is normal. It's abnormal and may need some specialized attention if it happens frequently, or you aren't able to get or snap out of it. If it persists beyond what seems reasonable to you, and or those around you who care about you. So this brings us now to Warden's second task of mourning, to process the pain of grief. Because grief hurts. Whether you're grieving the death of another, the end of a significant relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of expectations, hopes, plans, dreams that weren't realized, or any other kind of loss, grief hurts and it can hurt like nothing else and this pain is not just emotional it is also physical feeling it in your body as pain weakness lethargy even that feeling of brain fog warden uses the german word schmerz because its definition is broad and it includes the literal physical pain that many people experience and the emotional and behavioral pain associated with loss. Not dealing with this pain or trying to suppress it or avoid dealing with it can prolong your mourning and it can morph into, and it can make it morph into or manifest itself through physical symptoms like vomiting, heart attacks or other things, or some sort of aberrant behavior like Miss Havisham and Great Expectations jilted at the altar and only wearing her wedding dress for the rest of her life. That's somebody who did not deal with the pain of grief. We feel the pain of grief differently, even for similar losses. How one of you processes the pain, feels the pain of the loss of a spouse is going to be different from another person feeling that same kind of loss. When we meet Job today, following his friends that had just been sitting with him in that grief for seven days and seven nights. He is cursing the day of his birth, and in some rather vivid detail. His voice gives voice, he gives voice to the pain he feels at the many losses of family, property, wealth, and his own health. Job is not a man in denial about his suffering in grief. Even after one of his friends and then God tells him to settle down, check out chapters 4 and 5, Job insists that his complaint is just and begs God again to grant his request of never being born. See chapters 6 and 7. We do similar things when encountering the grief of others. We try to make the suffering survivor feel better by saying things like, life is for the living and he wouldn't want you to feel like this. Or, you're young. You can try again. 
And sometimes we internalize those direct messages and indirect messages. And we tell ourselves that we shouldn't be feeling what we're feeling, that we, we don't need to grieve. Or even that taking the time to grieve, to feel the pain, is somehow self-indulgent. These messages, even when well-intentioned, can hinder the process of our second task. Or they can help us short-circuit acknowledging and then processing that pain of grief. Denying our need to grieve, to process the pain, can also be made more complicated when the loss is something that's socially unacceptable or that otherwise lacks some natural social supports. Like early in the AIDS epidemic when it was mislabeled a gay disease and its victims were abandoned. Or when the death of a romantic partner happens, but they were married to somebody that's not you. Where are your social supports for that grief? Processing the pain of grief can also be made more difficult when the relationship was strained, like the death of an abusive or neglectful parent. Or when that breakup wasn't exactly mutual and one of you wanted to keep trying to make things work. Grief hurts. Job spends chapters speaking of his pain, even when those around him tell him to just chill. He insists on telling the truth of how much he hurts, even talking back to God. Take a moment now and recall a loss that you've experienced. The death of someone, a job, end of a relationship, some sort of organizational change, whatever. Some sort of loss. Think about what kind of pain, emotional and physical, did you experience? Can you recall how you processed that pain? Or if you tried to deny or suppress that pain, what happened? Maybe you can think of a time when you found yourself having processed the pain of a loss and needing to go back and process that pain again. We are created for relationship with one another, with ourselves, with our God. And when those relationships end or change, we grieve and there can be immense pain. And just like Job, we are justified in sharing the pro in sharing to process that pain, to work our way through the grief, even if that means talking back to God. Job never denied the existence or power of God. He was well aware and trusted in God, hence his pleas. Again, God has created, for, created us for relationship, and relationships change, and they grow, and they end, and they transition. And in grief of what used to be, there is pain to be processed. God talks to us in prayer and sends us others, family, friends, therapists, pastors, even strangers, to help us along the way. Having become flesh and lived among us, suffering and dying on the cross, we know that God is with us in that pain, in that grief, in the pain of that living that we carry on. Like no one else, though, God can take our pain even when we talk back, 
even when we feel like God is silent. Having created us for relationship, God sends us people to help us too. And even in pain, we give thanks for what was. Amen. A reading from Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. A reading from Bonnie Raitt. And just like that, your life can change. If I hadn't looked away, my boy might still be with me now. He'd be 25 today. No knife can carve away the stain. No drink can drown regret. They say Jesus brings you peace and grace. Well, he ain't found me yet. A reading from Luke. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Words of God, words of life. Okay, be seated. <clears throat> As I said before, today is the third installment of our grief and loss series. And I remind you that while we are using a clinical model to guide our discussion, this is not a replacement for grief therapy that you might need to do with a licensed therapist. It is also totally okay for you to get up and take a walk or go catch your breath if something is too hard for you to sit and listen to right now. Also, please let me know if something is too hard or you just need to talk something through. Again, we are using psychologist and grief researcher William Warden's Four Tasks of Mourning to guide our grief series. He focuses on death loss, but for our conversations, we also acknowledge and talk about other loss. So a quick recap of what we've already talked about. Task one is to accept the reality of the loss. This includes intellectual acceptance, you know, the facts of things, my husband is dead, and the emotional acceptance of stop reaching over in bed, expecting him to be there. And then task two is to process the pain of grief. This is recognizing that grief hurts, and we feel it in our bodies, but not dealing with the emotional pain can prolong our grief and it can morph it into physical symptoms or illness. As we move now into our third task, one more quick reminder. Warden's tasks 
of mourning recognize that grief is not a one and done or a checklist of things to just deal with and then you're done with it. Warden's tasks make room for us to move back and forth in them, to complete a task today, but come back to it again tomorrow. Now on to task three, the focus of today, to adjust to a world without the deceased. Warden talks about three areas of adjustment, external adjustments or how the death affects one's everyday functioning, internal adjustments or how the death affects one's sense of self, and spiritual adjustments or how the death affects one's beliefs, values, and assumptions about the world. We'll take each of these assumptions one by one, and as we do, I'm gonna ask you to think about your own mourning of a close loss. So take a quick moment to think of or name someone close to you who has died at least a year or more ago. Adjusting to a new environment without someone means different things based on the various roles someone plays in your life. For example, if Lowell dies, I lose all the things that he is to me. Spouse, partner, friend, companion, lover, chef, grocery shopper, tax preparer, irritator in chief. His brother loses a friend, someone with shared childhood memories, someone to share book and movie recommendations, and he loses help with their aging parents, also the tallest person in their family. His friend Sam loses something different, his favorite sparring partner in discussions about religion. Task three first gets worked a few months after a death because it takes us a while to realize what all we've lost with a person. If we apply this to something more communal, think about when the pandemic first began. There were several losses early on that we could name for ourselves and others. And then as time went on, even after lockdown was lifted, we discovered or realized other things that had been lost throughout that time including what had been normal, no more. It would never be that normal again. We make the external adjustments by redefining the loss and by meaning making, like making sense of the loss and or finding some sort of benefit from that loss. Think for a moment about your beloved dead. What was their official title in your life? What are some of the roles that they played in your life? And how long did it take you to realize some of those things, some of those roles? Foundational to our Judeo-Christian theology is that we are created by God and we are created for relationship with one another, with the divine, 
with all that the divine has created on earth and throughout the universe. So when we talk about internal adjustments to the death of someone, we talk about the adjustments we make to our own sense of self because being created for relationships mean we live lives of interconnectedness. And when one of those connections is gone, we have to do some work to redefine who we are without them. Not surprisingly, given how we are socialized, research suggests that women, more than men, tend to define themselves by certain dyad relationships, like wife or mother. But regardless of gender, it can be hard to separate one's identity from how we define ourselves by a relationship. For example, a widow may take some time to stop asking first, what would my spouse do? And start asking, what is it that I want to do? Bereavement can impact our sense of self-esteem, especially if it was dependent in some way upon the person to whom we were attached, as in, no one will ever love me again like they did. I'll never find a place to belong again. Bereavement can also impact our sense of self-efficacy or how much we feel we have control over what happens to us. Does this loss make us feel helpless, inadequate, incapable, or somehow personally bankrupt? we successfully make the internal adjustments when we relearn the world after a significant death or other loss and focus on the impact of that death or loss in our life. We ask, how am I different because of loving? Who am I now? Again, think for a moment about your beloved departed. How are you different for loving them? And who are you now that they are gone? Our third simultaneous adjustment is the spiritual one. And this is our sense of the world. Grieving is an attempt to reconstruct a world of meaning that has been challenged by loss. We have two challenges posed by grief, processing the event story of the death in order to make sense of what happened and its implications for our, for our ongoing lives. And access to the backstory of the relationship as a way of reconstructing an ongoing or continuing bond. As an example of that continuing bond, um, my, when my grandfather's brother died, we still called his widow aunt. And even after she married again, she and her new husband were still included in activities with my grandfather and my grandmother. So how do you maintain connections? Grief can shake our foundational assumptions about the world, those that are formed by our faith, relationships, life experiences, etc. We can feel a lack of direction in our lives. And there are three basic assumptions that are often, but not always, challenged. They are that the world is a benevolent place, that the world makes sense, and that we ourselves are worthy. 
Now, all usual flippancy aside about the state of the world, I think we do generally hold these assumptions. We certainly profess them in our theology, even that worthy part. While we might say we aren't worthy of what Christ has done for us, we are worthy because we are created beloved children of God. These three assumptions about the world that is benevolent, it makes sense, and that we are worthy are more likely challenged if the death was violent or premature. Like when someone dies well before our life expectancy, or they leave young kids, or a young widow, or parents who will never see them grow up. Or the way a school shooting challenges us because it just doesn't make sense for someone to mass murder a bunch of kids. These are the kinds of death that can create a spiritual crisis where we resent or question God. We might be dissatisfied with the spiritual support offered by the members of our own congregation. We might even have substantial changes to our own spiritual beliefs and behaviors. But there are also deaths that affirm these basic assumptions about the world, like when our elderly parents die. He lived a good, long life. I have no regrets. I got to say everything to her that I needed to. There are a lot of things about death, though, that make no sense on this side of the grave. And Warden quotes a woman whose son died in a plane crash, saying, it is not how to find an answer, but how to live without one, which I think is just a great partial definition of faith. Because faith is not about having the answers, but about living in the questions. So once again, think of that close and departed one. When they died, did you question or get angry with God? Did you thank God for them? Did you cry out to the abyss, why? What did you think of the world? Our psalmist cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling absence and rejection by God. Bonnie Raitt sings the story of a mother whose son died, and she can't find comfort. She blames herself, and she is so lost even Jesus can't find her. Following the death, and reported resurrection of Jesus, Luke tells us some of his disciples are walking along when a stranger joins them. They struggle to comprehend how this man has not heard what's been going on, so they relay what has happened, even saying, we thought he would be the one to liberate us. And John's writer tells us about Peter deciding to go fishing like he used to do before this Jesus guy interrupted his life. Like maybe he can just go back to what he knew before and he can forget about everything that has happened. But we are created for relationship and the one who created and cherishes us does not abandon us in our grief. Even if we feel God's absence, even if we feel rejected or abandoned by God, 
are angry with or doubt God, even if we reject God outright, God is still there with us in grief. And love changes us. When we love someone as a friend, as a partner, a parent, a child, a neighbor, when we love someone, we are changed. We see and experience the world anew. And because we love and are changed by love, we grieve when that love changes through death or other separation. Grief changes us, requires us to see and experience the world anew when who or what had first changed us in love is now gone. But we of Christian faith know that grief, that change, is not the end. We only adjust again and again and again until at last God calls us to risen and eternal life as one in and with the Trinity. Amen. A reading from John. Then Jesus told the disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. His sister Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. A reading from 1 Corinthians. Look, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And a reading from Romans. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
death no longer has dominion over him. Words of God, words of life. Today is the final installment of our grief and loss series. So as always, if you need to take a break from listening and step out, do so. Let me know if I've hit on something especially hard or sensitive, especially if it's potentially harmful to you or others. And again, we are using a clinical model to guide our series discussions, but this is not a replacement for any specific work you may need to do with a licensed mental health professional. So be in touch with the therapist as needed. The model that we are using comes from grief researcher and psychologist William Warden, who over the last 40 to 50 years has identified, developed, and refined what he calls four tasks of mourning. So a quick review of the first three. Task one is to accept the reality of the loss. This requires both intellectual and emotional acceptance. The facts, like my husband is dead and letting go of vain and practical hope that he will be there if I reach over to feel him on his side of the bed. Task two is to process the pain of a grief. Grief hurts. Emotionally, physically, it hurts, and it sucks. We like to avoid, deny, push down pain. But if we are successful at not dealing with our pain, we prolong our grief, and our emotional pain may turn into physical symptoms or abnormal behaviors. Task three is to adjust to a world without the deceased. Proving that mourning takes time, this task acknowledges that often for months we don't even know what all we have lost when someone dies. And in this, we have three areas of adjustment. We have external adjustments, or how the death affects one's everyday functioning in the world. We have internal adjustments, or how the death affects one's sense of self. And there are spiritual adjustments or how the death affects one's beliefs, values, and assumptions about the world. And now we come to task four, to find a way to remember the deceased while embarking on the rest of one's journey through life. Warden shares that early on, in the mid-70s to early 80s, he defined this fourth task as withdrawing emotional energy from the deceased and reinvesting it in another relationship. But then he continues to say, we now know that people do not decathect from the dead, but find ways to remember the deceased. So as a personal aside, I very much appreciate that Warden, who is 90 this year, so freely shares pieces of his own lifelong learning from others' research and how it has helped to improve his own research and work. Because of Warden and his contemporaries' work, we have learned a lot about grief just in the last half century, such as where we used to think it was best to just kind of let go of people close to us when they died, as if death is the end period full stop, 
We now know that not only do we not withdraw all of our emotional energy from loved ones who have died, it is also healthy and good for us to carry those relationships forward with us in some form as we continue to live our lives. Research is telling us that it is normal and expected for us to find and develop continuing bonds with deceased loved ones. Kids often report still feeling the presence of a dead parent. We'll talk to them. We complete our mourning, the process of adapting to the death of a person when we no longer need to reactivate some exaggerated representation of the dead in our daily lives. Or to put that another way, we complete our mourning when our readiness to enter new relationships no longer depends on us giving up the deceased, but instead we find a suitable place for them in our psychological life that also makes room for others. We continue to have what we lost, but in a new, transformed way. Like a child, including some representation of a deceased parent in life events, or honoring anniversaries you shared with a spouse or partner, maybe even as you enter into a new romantic partnership. Warden tells us it is difficult to define what non-completion of this fourth task looks like. Perhaps, he says, the best description would be not living. Have you ever looked back at a span of your life following a significant loss and thought, wow, did my life end? Like, it just stopped. Maybe like you crawled into the grave with your loved one or you found yourself unable to function after losing a job. Or you wondered, now what? When a relationship ended, taking with you all of your plans for your shared life together. Or think about popular music and how the lyrics often wax elegant over never finding love again, which only gives a false validity to the notion of one's life being over. Like it is difficult to define what non-completion of this task looks like, Warden says that for many, this is a difficult task to accomplish because it's very common for us to get stuck at the point of a loss. Like we look back at our lives and realize that nothing really happened for a while. He quotes a young woman whose father had died two years before. As this woman was beginning to work through task four, she wrote to her mother from college saying, there are other people to be loved, and it doesn't mean that I love dad any less. So another reminder, grieving is a fluid process, and it's influenced by a number of factors, including kinship, relationship, nature of the death or loss, your own history of grieving, your personality, different social variables, and what other losses and stressors are happening at the same time. 
the tasks we've been discussing can be worked together. They can be worked repeatedly over time. You might find yourself working them in different orders. The mental health field tells us, and rightly so, that death does not have to be the end. We can find and develop healthy and helpful ways to remember and stay connected with loved ones and thus keep them alive in memory. This is true whether we use warden's tasks of mourning or another clinical model to help us describe and process our grief. But alongside that, our Christian faith tells us that death is not the end. Trusting in the promises of the resurrection, the enduring connections we have with departed loved ones can be a foretaste of life eternal. And this is true whether we are having a day of great belief, a day of great doubt, or any other sort of day. In our reading today, Jesus grieves for his friend who is dead, and he knows, and Martha knows, that their beloved Lazarus will rise again. Even being the resurrection and life, breathing proof that though we die, we live, Jesus' own humanness models the naturalness of grief. Paul writes to the Corinthian and Roman communities about death and life, mortality and immortality, and union with Christ in death and resurrection. Death of the flesh, whatever losses we grieve, is not the final word, even in this life. In baptism, we die to our old selves, drowning in the water, and then we rise again from the depths of the grave to new life. In grief, what has been ceases to be, and a part of us does kind of die with what has been lost. And then we make room for new love, and we rise again. God, who has created us for relationship, who has joined us in fleshy living to intimately know the hurts and happies of humanity, loves us in joy and sorrow, and has provided abundantly for our living, our dying, our loving, our grieving, and our resurrection. While our grief over the loss of life, relationships, jobs, health, any number of other losses that we grieve, while our grief over loss ebbs and flows throughout our lives, we are assured by faith in the promises of the resurrection. Like Jesus from the tomb, we rise and love again. Life in God has the final word. Amen.